It started from questions, really. I was just kind of wondering, what, what does this mean and how is it going to impact children's development and the development of their relationship with their parents um, if we're all relying on technology so much um, about things like, um, you know, your home speaker, Alexa, being able to detect signs of depression in your voice when you're speaking or to be able to detect early signs of a cold um, personal data is more valuable than oil um, and, and has been since I think about 2017 or um, haptic research basically looks at the, the sense of touch and how that can be kind of programmed into into technology um, and I saw a couple of examples where for example you'd have a, a kind of like a wrist like a bracelet or a wrist watch, a band around your wrist. And when you get a like on Facebook, you feel a little bit of pressure there. So that you feel almost as though somebody's holding your hand, as though another human is holding your hand. Research has shown that when babies don't receive enough um, physical touch, their brains actually don't develop to the full volume um, that, that they should develop to. The best thing to do is to try and delay tech use as much as you can with your child. If you can delay it until they're three or four or five years old, if you can go until six and seven, I mean, that would be highly unusual in today's world. But if you can at all, it's really the easiest thing to do because a lot of times what I hear parents say is, well, my four-year-old, as soon as they wake up, you know, their eyes open, they want tech. As long as it's good quality technology and it's not dominating the child's day, it's okay to outsource some of that. But we have to be very careful about what uh, we're outsourcing because we don't want our kids to be missing out um, on those human connections that they really need in order to be developed, in order to be able to develop um, in a healthy way. Um, technology is is built for that purpose. I always like to tell parents, especially who have you know kids who who um, who play games a lot. You know, Fortnite was not made to be used for four minutes and to be put down. That defeats the purpose of what it's made for in the business model and you know everything it's made to be stimulating it's made to be enticing it's made to draw you in um, to hook you to want you to stay there and to really fully immerse you um, in that world that is what it's designed for brain really doesn't like to be in a state where it doesn't understand something where something's kind of puzzling or, or strange or unknown. It wants to figure it out. It always wants to get to the bottom of things. So if you hand a child an iPad, even with very few instructions, um, they're going to become playful with it and they're going to explore and they're going to figure out how to do, how to do different things. It's really just an indicator of how, how amazing our brains are. This is Denmark Real. I am Amar Ahmed. With me today is Teodora Pakovic, a psychologist, a life coach, and an international speaker. And you are also a parenting coach, right? Yes, that's right. Focusing on parenting in the age of technology. Welcome to you, Teodora. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Amar. Have I forgotten anything in introducing you? <laughs> I don't think you have. I think you, you've hit all the main points. Thank you. I was actually amazed by the wide range of interests that you are that you are having, and I when I was when I was reading that it was like anthropology, archaeology, it's like all these things and theology and psychology, something that have so much depth, and and needs a lot of studying, right? It does. Yes. Yes. Um, I think part of it I think is is down to the fact that I grew up as a third culture kid, and so. I was very used to and really fascinated by being around people of, of very different 
uh, religions and backgrounds and ethnicities. I've lived in, in nine different countries and I'm originally from Eastern Europe, but I grew up in the Middle East. So a huge difference in, in cultures there. Uh, and I think then the other part of it is just the way I was brought up. My mom worked um, as a textile conservationist in, in the Museum of Ethnology in Belgrade, Serbia, which is where I'm originally from. So when I was a kid, I used, I used to spend a lot of time in the museum just kind of running around and looking at the different exhibits and things and um and my dad is his backgrounds in in music and in football or soccer for our american uh, viewers and uh, he's always been a really avid reader so i think all those things kind of mixed up and psychology was what i ended up studying but all of these other fields i'm really really interested in and and i kind of i keep kind of improving my knowledge in all these different fields because they're really all connected to to what it means to be human um, and that's what I'm primarily interested in. Yes, um, in interesting, very, very interesting. Why the interest in, in technology and kids and parenting? Um, I think the, the, the primary interest has been in children. I've always been interested in kids. I've always worked with, with kids in educational settings and therapeutic settings, running workshops. And um, I worked as a, as a vision therapist with visually impaired children for a while. So um, the interest in, in children is primary. And then the interest in parenting and families is, is a result of that. Uh, the interest in technology came uh, around the year 2016, early 2016. I was living in uh, in Singapore at the time, and I was working as a um, as a vision therapist with with kids. And because Singapore, Southeast Asia in general, um, there are communities that really value technology and really value uh, kids learning how to use technology from a very early age. I was just starting to to kind of observe the infiltration of technology and the the infiltration of devices. Um, I would be, you know, sitting on the bus, and I would look at the child next to me. And in the middle of the ride of them being perfectly kind of quiet and peaceful and mindfully staring out the window, um, the parent or guardian, whoever was with them, would just hand them an iPad or they'd you know hand them the phone or they you know do whatever. So, uh, so I just started to wonder, what does that mean? What is that doing to the child's brain? How is it impacting their ability to? just be? Um, how is it impacting their ability to be mindful? Um, how is it impacting their connection with their parent? What happens really when um, you kind of insert a, a device or a piece of technology between the child um, and the parent, especially given that we, we know how um, kind of interruptive these devices can be distractive and, and all the rest of it. So, so really that was how the, the focus on technology happened. I'm not, you know, you listed the things that I'm interested in. They all have a lot more to do with, with humans than, than technology really. So I'm definitely not the most tech savvy of people myself. Uh, I'm, I'm a lot more interested in the, in the human side, but I was just starting to, it started from questions really. I was just kind of wondering what, what does this mean and how is it going to impact children's development and the development of their relationship with their parents um, if we're all relying on technology so much. Um, and so really it started from, from 2016 and that was kind of where I started to focus a little bit more on, on parenting in the age of technology and, um, and starting to ask a lot of these questions, not just kind of using my inner voice, but out loud as well. And so the first time I spoke about this topic was, um, was in Singapore at the Art Science Museum. Uh, where their curators uh, very kindly invited me to speak at the opening very big exhibit they had called Big Bang Data. And so I was the only psychologist there and I was invited to talk about the potential impact of technology on, on human beings. Um, and that's, that's still a, a topic that I, that I frequently talk about. Yeah, because I was 
I was watching a lot of your podcasts um, and speaks out, out there, both, both in TEDx and you have been in a few others that I don't remember the name. Sorry for that. You are passionate, you speak fast, you have a lot to say, <laughs> and you sound very, very smart. And it is, it is, it is. And you are very, very smart. I can, I can, I can tell, I can see that. It's, um, so, it's amazing. So, thank you for being you, really. And uh, thank you for caring so much for, for the kids. Because right now, the technology, do we know where this is heading? That's, yeah, that's, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking the same, the same kind of question. And I know that we'll be mentioning this later on, um, but a few of my, my digital wellness uh, kind of fellow collaborators and practitioners and I have come together to put together a conference to ask other people that same, that same question. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to say, really. I think if we, if, so if, if we look at, if we take a very scientific approach and we look at the data and we look at all the, the stats, um, we know that we're using technology more and more. We know that we're spending more and more time, regardless of, of you know, the, the global pandemic that's kind of forced us to do this. But in general, we're consuming um, increasing kind of volumes of technology. One of the things that I also like to do, I was going to say in my spare time, which I don't actually have, but, um, but, the, but something that I really enjoy doing is, is kind of tracking the different patents that big tech companies like Amazon, for example, are applying for, because I think that really gives you an indicator of, of the direction in which they're going and, and what tech innovation means for them. And what it means really is, is for tech to really infiltrate our lives even more intensely and more broadly than it already has. So we're talking about things like, um, you know, your home speaker, Alexa, being able to detect signs of depression in your voice when you're speaking, or to be able to detect early signs of a cold um, and of course, immediately order for some cough syrup um, from, you know, from, from the pharmacy and, and things like that. So, um, and we know that uh, families are increasingly purchasing home speakers, for, for example. So I think that the, the trend seems to be more tech, not less tech. Um, I'm, I'm myself, I'm not an anti-tech person. I'm, I'm not a, a kind of a screen-free proponent necessarily. If families make that choice, I absolutely support them. Um, but I, I don't feel that we need to remove all forms of, of tech. I myself was, was an 80s child, so I grew up spending a lot of time in front of the, the television. So I don't want to be a hypocrite. Uh, when, it, you know, when it comes to that, I also had a Nintendo a little bit later on and so on. Um, but I think for me, the most important trend I think that we should all employ is, is mindful technology use. And I think in order for us to be mindful with how we use technology, there are certain things about it that we need to know and that we need to be aware of. Um, and these are some of the things that I, that I teach about and that I speak about when I do my workshops or when I do my, my public speaking. So the importance of, of understanding things like persuasive design and, and what persuasive design is. Understanding the fact that um, personal data is more valuable than oil um, and, and has been since I think about 2017 or 18, something like that. Um, understanding that there is no such thing as a free app. Um, that, that just simply doesn't exist. You're always giving something in exchange, right, for, for, the, for the free app. So, so things like this. And I've, I've spoken to, um, to, to parents. It's a, it's a blog series that I hope uh, once this conference is over that I'm organizing, I'll be able to, to publish on my blog. But I've, I've done a, um, a couple of 
interviews with, with mothers in particular for now, who use very mindful technology use kind of approaches with their kids. And, um, you know, they've been teaching their kids about some of these things since the age of about four or five. A lot of the times parents or adults in general really underestimate how much children can understand and how early they can understand it. Um, but I've, you know, I've spoken to mothers whose six-year-olds are aware of how Facebook works and what Facebook ads are and what it means to work for a company like Facebook. And, and, and I don't mean to, um, to single them out in any way. I just mean in general, the big tech companies. So, so for me, knowledge is, is power. Awareness is power. And I know that oftentimes people especially people who are not very tech savvy will say, oh God, I don't want to have to know what persuasive design is. And I don't want to have to know how the YouTube algorithm works. And I don't want to have to know how the Amazon um, algorithms work and what consent means. But I'm afraid we found ourselves in a position where we can't not know these things. We really can't afford not to, um, not to know them anymore, especially because now you're also seeing developments in the fields of AI, um, artificial intelligence, VR, virtual reality, um, haptic research, which is something I've very recently um, stumbled across and, and we're going to try and address that topic as well in our conference. Um, haptic research basically looks at the, the sense of touch and how that can be kind of programmed into, into technology. Um, and I saw a couple of examples where, for example, you'd have a, a kind of like a wrist, like a bracelet or a wrist watch, a band around your wrist. And when you get a like on Facebook, you feel a little bit of pressure there so that you feel almost as though somebody's holding your hand. As though another human is holding your hand. So, so, so those are you know some of the examples of where technology is going. Um, another piece of tech that I think is supposed to be coming out this year, maybe that's been delayed, is something called smart diapers. So it's a diaper that will be able to detect um, when a when a baby has done what it needs to do, and it will send a notification on the smartphone, and then the parent or guardian or whoever's taking care of the baby will see, oh, okay, the baby did what it was supposed to do. So, and then you have things like smart pushers. I mean, there, there are all sorts of, of different things that are coming out and innovation is, is I think, wonderful. But, but why? Yeah, but, but, but why do we need a diaper that can recognize and, send, and text you or? I don't know if we do. <laughs> I think that is, that is one, of, one of the other things that I talk about often when I speak to, to parents and non-parents is the whole idea that, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning Facebook now, but that Mark Zuckerberg popularized, which is this idea of, of move fast and break things. And I think a lot of the times that is the approach of a lot of, of tech companies. Um, of course, innovation is, like I said, an amazing thing. Creativity is an amazing thing. Having that vision for the future is incredible. But I think oftentimes there is that concept of let's put something together because it's cool and it's new and, um, and it could be really interesting and we think people would be really curious about it and they would probably want to try it out and, and see what it's like. Let's just put it out there and then as people use it, we'll kind of figure it out. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, so I'm assuming that that a lot of the times is the approach to some of these new technologies. I think pretty much every you know, piece of innovative tech can be used for really Kind of for really good kind of humane purposes so i could definitely imagine how a smart diaper for example may be very useful for um, maybe newborns who are born with a disability or an illness you know in hospitals and other kinds of of settings like that i think a, a lot of tech has a lot of uh, purpose in, in situations like that. Um, but the thing is also that a lot of often, I don't want to say a lot, but oftentimes tech that initially starts being created for those kind of scientific exploratory purposes um, then ends up being commercialized. Um, and then you end up with something like say a smart diaper, which is offered to 
your everyday you know consumers so um so i don't know it you know it may be a, a smart diaper may be very attractive to working parents for example or you know there, there will be there will be instances in which it will be useful um i just think it's important to take a step back and and think in the long term, um, what, what does it actually mean if, if an app is checking up on your baby instead of a, a human being? Um, so I, I think it, 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 it kind of it has many more questions than, than answers, really. And I think yeah, we because, need to ask those questions. Yeah, because we are replacing more and more the human, the human's touch. And if, if, that, is, if that is good or not, from my perspective, this is my, just my opinion. I don't think it is good. Um, a bracelet that will give you the feeling of a human by a like, this is a false experience. This is an, right. an, il right. an illusory experience. An illusion. Not, not yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it, it goes into that, I guess, that philosophical question. So a question of what's real and, and what isn't and how do we how do we know what's real? Um, in that instance, in a very physical, physiological, biological way, it's real because you definitely feel something through your senses. So your senses are definitely being stimulated. Um, but what what is stimulating them? So in, in that instance, it's a it's essentially a machine that's stimulating them as opposed to an actual human being. And so I feel like during this period of kind of physically distancing ourselves, I'm very hopeful on the one hand that it's really going to help us understand just how much we need other human beings and how, you know, how wonderful it would be for me to be sitting in that chair next to you. I mean, we're in different countries, so that's, so that's hard for that reason. But, um, but in any case, we probably wouldn't be able to do it anyway if, if I was there. So on the one hand, I'm very hopeful that this will kind of guide us back almost to each other. But on the other hand, uh, what worries me is that the, the, this physical distancing, I think, is, is providing a lot more uh, kind of fuel and motivation to a lot of tech research in some of these fields, um, like virtual reality and haptic research, um, distance learning, for example, you know, uh, Microsoft is, is working on that very hard, especially um, in the state of, of New York to try and implement some of those approaches more long term, so not just as a solution to COVID. So I think it's, it's, it's really a balancing act. It's, it's trying to, to balance out innovation and, and trying to create technologies that are really useful and supportive and, and helpful, but really try to do that without um, taking away from the human experience and, and trying to take away from what it means to be human and to develop in a, in a healthy way as a human being. What is, what is good parenting? Because, because people are so sensitive, so sensitive about parenting, and I understand that. It's your kid, and you want to raise them as you want, and that's totally perfect, and I understand that. And So what are your approach on that? Yes. Um, my answer to that really has to do with which my answers to this always have to do with just going back again to the very, very basics in terms of uh, healthy child development, the healthy development of the brain. What does our brain need? What does our brain really need in order to help us, in order to be healthy itself? Because without a healthy brain, you don't have a healthy body and you don't have a human being. So, um, so if you, if you, if, if I give you my answer from that perspective, uh, what good parenting is or what it looks like is um, a parent who is attentive, a parent who is responsive, 
um, a parent who is present uh, and a parent who is affectionate. Those are kind of the four main things. And, and when you say them like that, they sound very easy. And it's like, yeah, of course, you know, of course I'm there for my child. Of course I'm attentive, of course I'm, um, but a lot of the times, and it's not just down to technology, you know, we're, we're seeing huge kind of cultural changes um, in society, both parents working um, or, or single parent families, um, grandparents taking care of kids. So, so kind of the, 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 the nature of families and what it means to be a family has changed and, and we've had to adapt to that. But really the most important thing is, is for that child to have at least one parent around who is going to be able to offer up um, those things. So to, to be attentive, to be responsive, to really be present. Um, and to be affectionate as well. And those are kind of the most basic things, again, based on a lot of um, science or research from the field of, of neuroscience that we know our brain actually needs to be healthy. And speaking of, of the sense of touch, um, that's another very, very important thing. So, and, and research has shown that when babies don't receive enough um, physical touch, their brains actually don't develop to the full volume um, that, that they should develop to. So they don't develop the part of so they don't don't they don't develop the part of emotions, right? They, have, they definitely have a, a, a harder time with um, kind of becoming emotionally and socially intelligent. I don't know if the research has been able to, able to kind of pinpoint exactly you know what are the kind of the the, the features of the brain or the attributes of the brain um, that end up being underdeveloped. It's it's I think it's a, it's it's more things than just that. It can be um, motor skills as well. It can be things like eye hand coordination. It can be a lot of different things. But yes, um, if a child doesn't have that attentive, uh, loving, caring, present, responsive adult, um, it definitely makes it a lot harder for them to learn things like empathy, maintaining eye contact, detecting different tones of voice, postures, gestures, you know, all, all of those pieces of information that we get when we're actually face to face with someone. Um, the important thing to remember is that our brain is incredibly malleable. It can change. And there's a wonderful book I'd recommend to everyone called The Brain That Changes Itself um, by Norman Dodge. Uh, we didn't know for a very long time that the brain was capable of doing that. Luckily, we know that now. And so um, one other thing that I would actually add on kind of as a, as a fifth element um, to, to what I've already said is the ability to repair. Um, repairing in any relationship is incredibly important that even if we make a mistake or something doesn't go quite as well as, as we wanted um, that we're really able to come in and to repair any damage and, and the good news is is that as far as our brain is concerned we can absolutely do that and so we can absolutely help children um, who maybe uh, grow up with with that kind of underdeveloped ability to be emotionally intelligent we can absolutely help them do that when they're older it's just always of course a lot easier um, to try and prevent things and actually try to cure them uh, afterwards yeah I think a lot of parents parents have difficulty with discipline, their kids especially. They are telling them clean up your room, <laughs> and it's not and it's not happening. Again and again and again, they are telling the same thing. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, one of my favorite um, book and one of my or two of my favorite authors when it comes to to books around parenting are uh, Tina Payne Bryson and Dr. Daniel Siegel. And they've uh, written in a, in a number of books about this topic of, of discipline and what it means to discipline a child. And what I love about their approach is that they've looked at what discipline or to discipline or disciple means in its original very original kind of ancient Greek, ancient Roman um, sense. And what it means really is to teach. 
we don't typically conceptualize it that way. We, need, we, we usually think that discipline means that I'm kind of here to punish you, I'm here to straighten you out. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm here to kind of teach you, but, but in a little bit more of a, of a kind of aggressive way, maybe. Um, whereas that concept of, of being a teacher and being a guide is just a much, much kind of softer concept of, of what we want to do with kids, really. And, and I, I like to share that idea because I think it, it, it changes the way parents relate to disciplining. I think one of, one of the reasons why it's so difficult is because, you know, I, I think very few parents actually enjoy doing the disciplining thing. No parent enjoys having to tell their kid the same thing over and over again, knowing that they're going to say no, or they're going to make it difficult, or, you know, it's, it's going to be a conflict. And so then disciplining suddenly means, you know, equal to uh, conflict and, and arguments and, and, or, you know, discussions at best. So um, I think one of, one of the, the first things to do is to try and maybe reorient ourselves to what it means to discipline a child. It's really about teaching them. Um, and, and sometimes it is also about knowing kind of how to pick your battles, which is a really difficult thing to do, and it's very hard to let it go. Um, but oftentimes, um, you know, doing the same thing over and over again uh, will not lead to a different outcome. And so we then have to figure out what is a slightly different way in which I can kind of approach this. Maybe I should step back for a little bit and just forget about it for three or four days or a week or, or, you know, or whatever it might be and then come back later on. Or maybe I should just try and relate in an entirely different way. I know a lot of parents now, especially of teenagers, are struggling with the fact that their teens are sleeping until noon and one and two and 3 p.m. And, and all sorts of kind of weird hours. And I think that's become a really big battle for a lot of people. Um, I think one of the, the kind of the, the easiest and most effective ways to approach this, given the circumstances that we're in, is really to start off with empathy um, and understanding and, and compassion and, and really try to, to let our kids know that, that we get how difficult this is for them, um, especially if they were getting ready to graduate from high school or you know, just go through any other very big transition. None of us have gone through a global pandemic before. This is the very first time for all of us. And it, it's very, very difficult for kids to try and make sense of this because we don't know how to make sense of this either. Um, and so again, as, you know, as, as a psychologist, my kind of my first approach is always empathy and, and understanding and compassion. And uh, I think with teenagers in particular, that, that often works quite well. Don't you think this is also something I observe, I've, I've watched and observed. Don't you think that many parents do, doesn't, doesn't have the energy or doesn't want to or doesn't like to take the challenge up of teaching the kid instead of just handing them an iPad or saying to them, sit in front of the TV, daddy or mommy have to do something with their phone or write an email. This is what I have been seeing every day and it's, it's not looking good. Right. There's, I mean, there is definitely a lot of that as well. And again, like I said, um, I was, I was a, a kid who was growing up in, in the 80s and, and early 90s and the television definitely was uh, not very often maybe, but often enough was used as you know, this is something that you can do while I'm doing A, B, C, or D. Um, and, and I grew up, I think, in a little bit more of a kind of traditional household when you do have, a, and I live in just across the water from New York City. So you have a lot of families where both parents are working and both parents are working full time. And there is a genuine question of what are we going to do in terms of balancing our work and, and balancing our, our, our roles as professionals and how are we going to balance those with our roles of being a caretaker and, and, and being a parent. So um, again, my, my first 
response to that is always compassion and understanding for the fact that people, um, if not just for just for kind of very basic um, sort of survival reasons, need to make a certain amount of money to take care of their their family. Um, a lot of them also want to also embody that role. They don't just want to be a parent or just want to be a spouse or just want to be a father, daughter, whatever it may be. They also want to kind of realize themselves professionally as well. And, and of course, I, I support that completely. But we are seeing, again, we used the word outsourcing earlier on. We are seeing that a lot of outsourcing is happening right now. Technology is making that very easy to do. And like I said, if we look at the trends in technology, it's not going to slow down anytime soon. And so there will be technologies like the smart diaper for coming out and there will be um, uh, more and more products related to distance learning and to, to, you know, to helping kids learn without the presence of, an, of, an, you know, of a physical human being there, an actual teacher um, and, and all the rest of it. And so, again, I find a lot of the times if I, if I try to enter a conversation with a parent and I say, you cannot do that, you cannot outsource anything to technology, um, the conversation will end as soon as it started. And so my approach with that is, first of all, to, to help people kind of become a little bit more aware of that and also see what are some of the ways in which they can change that a little bit. So the, the best thing to do is to try and delay tech use as much as you can with your child. If you can delay it until they're three or four or five years old, if you can go until six and seven, I mean, that would be highly unusual in today's world. But if you can at all, it's really the easiest thing to do. Because a lot of times what I hear parents say is, well, my four-year-old, as soon as they wake up, you know, their eyes open, they want tech. Um, I say they do because they know it's there and they know they have access to it and they know that they can get it. So the easiest thing to really do is to try and put it off as long as possible. Um, if there are moments where you absolutely have to use it because you have to outsource some of, some of these things to tech, it's really trying to do it in a controlled and mindful and very intentional kind of a way. A lot of parents are working from home. They have Zoom calls. You know, they have so many things that they, that they have to do. And if you have a one or a two or a three-year-old, um, who has the, you know, the slightest bit of a kind of feisty personality, it would be really difficult to keep them occupied um, while you're doing other things. And so, so I think, again, as long as it's good quality technology and it's not dominating the child's day, it's okay to outsource some of that. But we have to be very careful about what uh, we're outsourcing because we don't want our kids to be missing out um, on those human connections that they really need in order to be, developed, in order to be able to develop um, in a healthy way. Yeah, because if the technology that they are using right now, let's say a, a game or a, an app, if that giving them, if that is actually working instead of the uh, parent, right? If if it is replacing the the comfort of the parent, then it is. The, yes. From my view, it's they wake up to the iPad. They want the iPad. Yes. They desire. It is like wanting sugar. Yes. Exactly. That. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's important here to understand that um, technology is, is built for that purpose. I always like to tell parents, especially who have, you know, kids who, who, um, who play games a lot, you know, Fortnite was not made to be used for four minutes and to be put down. That defeats the purpose of what it's made for in the business model and, you know, everything. It's made to be stimulating. It's made to be enticing. It's made to draw you in, um, to hook you, to want you to stay there and to really fully immerse you um, in that world. That is what it's designed for. So when kids respond to that 
call, um, we shouldn't be surprised because that's exactly what the intention is behind it. So, so first of all, we have to be very clear on that. Um, we have to be clear on the fact that most apps are, are, are gamified. Again, the idea is to keep us there and to keep us stimulated, to keep us enticed. Um, there's, there's research that was done recently and I forget now which university, but it was it was here in the U.S. Um, where they set up two um, kind of two situations, and they wanted to observe how little children, toddlers, would would react to their parents calling them. So, in the first instance, they had a child play with what you call kind of a traditional toy, like a wooden block or a stuffed toy or something like that. And then they had the parent call the child's name, and you know the parent looked up, or sorry, the child looked up and looked at the parent and, and started communicating with them. In the second instance, they had a child. Um, use an iPad or a, you know, a tablet or a smartphone playing some kind of a game and they had the parent call them out again and the child wasn't responsive. The child wasn't answering to their own name being called by their own parent, right? So these are the things that, that, that I think parents have to be aware of when they decide to give their children the technology to understand that this is what this piece of tech does. Um, if left completely unsupervised, that is what it's going to do to the child. It is going to distract them. It is going to completely immerse them into what is going on. It will create some level of breakage um, in your connection with your child and your child will try to satisfy its needs through that tablet or smartphone and not through you, uh, which is a complete kind of evolutionary mismatch, right? That's not what's supposed to be going on. Um, so with that in mind, then we can make decisions in terms of when do we expose kids to tech for how long, what kinds of things do we let them watch? Do they play games? What kinds of games do they play? Um, and for how long do we let them play multiplayer games? You know, all these, all these different things. Um, and we, we observe them again, kids, kids are very, they're very mindful and they're very present. They're very in the moment. You can tell exactly what is going on just by observing them. And some kids are kind of are very good at shifting tasks, at transitioning from one thing to another. Um, other kids are really bad at it and they struggle with it. They need some help, even without technology being a part of it. Once you put technology in there, um, you'll hear all kinds of horror stories from parents saying that as soon as I come in and I say, okay, we have five minutes, there's a complete you know, breakdown and crying and screaming and, and, and all the rest of it. So, um, so we have to know some things before we expose kids to tech. Once we expose them to it, we have to kind of monitor it and then if we're seeing things that we don't like then we have to go in and have that conversation about we need to make some changes here and if what the family decides is a kind of tech zero tech free zone um, then that's fine I think every family should have should have permission to, to make that decision um, for themselves um, it's not always necessary but in some cases it might be children I mean human beings you know the reason why we have all this tech and these houses and these pieces of furniture and espresso machines and, and cars and airplanes and things that we have is because we're incredibly creative and um, we seek knowledge and we, we innovate and, and we, can, we, you know, we can use our imagination in ways that no other species can on this planet. You know, that's incredible. But we're, our brains are built to adapt and to learn very, very quickly, which is a good thing because it's a wonderful coping mechanism. And that's why we've you know, survived this long and haven't died out as a, as a species. Um, kids in particular are incredibly good at just learning how to use things very, very fast. And so sometimes I'll see parents say, wow, my one-year-old you know, knows how to scroll and play a video on YouTube. And I say, 
I know that's normal. That's, that's, that's nothing unusual. It's, it, that's how their brains are built. They, they, their, their brains are built in such a way that they show up on this planet and they go, I don't know what the rules are here. I don't know how I'm supposed to be. I'm going to watch and soak everything up and learn and learn and learn. So whatever you throw in front of them, they're going to want to try and figure it out. Um, the brain really doesn't like to be in a state where it doesn't understand something or something's kind of puzzling or, or strange or unknown. It wants to figure it out. It always wants to get to the bottom of things. So if you hand a child an iPad, even with very few instructions, um, they're going to become playful with it and they're going to explore and they're going to figure out how to do how to do different things. It's really just an indicator of how, how amazing our brains are. And so as wonderful as that is, that also means that whatever you expose them to very early on, like you said, they will get used to it. Um, they will learn how to use it and then they will expect it. With little kids, um, habits form very, very quickly. As soon as you're really done, performed a certain movement once or twice, they're already expecting you to do it for that third time. And when it doesn't come, they're disappointed and they're surprised and they don't understand you know, why it happened. So day after day, if they're using uh, a tablet or they're watching a particular cartoon, of course, they're going to expect it on every single following day. And so some families will, will meet that challenge by saying, okay, we only use tech in the evenings for an hour, or we only use tech on weekends, or we only, you know, we don't use tech when we go on vacation. So I think the important thing to remember is that there are lots of things that families can do to try and figure out this, this tech challenge. Um, it isn't really a one size fits all. Like I said, some families want to go zero tech. Um, other families are very tech savvy and they like to have a lot of tech in their home and, you know, and there's everything in, in between a really, really huge range. That's, that's lovely. What do you notice about a person when you first see them? Oh, that's a very good question. I don't know. I, I don't think it's a, it's probably not a conscious thing. I'm guessing for a lot of people, it's not a conscious thing. I think unless they're wearing, wearing something that's very, you know, like if you were wearing a Star Wars shirt, I would have noticed that immediately um, <laughs> for sure. But uh, I don't know. I, I think it's just, I, I just, I look at people's faces. I guess they're how responsive they, they are, they're kind of their facial features, their, their eyes and their, their mouths. I think that's probably the first thing that I, that I notice, just kind of pe people's facial expressions. Yeah. What do you feel the most gratitude for? What are you most grateful for in your life? Uh, there are a lot of things. Uh, so maybe I'm grateful that I have a lot of things to be grateful for. That's maybe the main one. Um, yeah. I have a lot to be grateful for. I think the main the main thing probably would be for my family, um, for for my parents, for the way I was raised, for the fact that I was raised in a very kind of international, multicultural way. I think I feel like that's the biggest gift um, that really any human being can be given to be exposed to other human beings who come from from different cultures, who come from different backgrounds. I think my the way I, I grew up and who my, my best friends were, and none of them were really like me. Um, I think it, it just, it, it taught me in a very subtle way, some really, really important lessons um, that just make it a lot easier for me to, to connect with people. So I, so I think those are some of the most, the things that I'm really most grateful for. It, it, it's my family and the fact that I've, I've had this opportunity to grow up um, with so many different people from so many different um, parts of the world. I, I often find myself, I lived in Singapore for a long time. And so 
I'll often watch news from Singapore and I'm originally from Serbia, so I'll watch news there. Um, my dad is currently in the Middle East, so I'll watch what's going on here. And then I'm here in the US, I'll look at what's going on here and I'll have a moment where I'll just think, I can't listen to any more news, this is overwhelming. But then I think the reason why I'm doing it is because I care about all these, all these different places. These are all the different places where I've lived and I care about the people who live in all of these different communities because I was a part of, of that community at some point kind of throughout my, my journey. Um, so, so, so that's, that's, I think just the, the, the fact that I've been able to live my life in, in the way I have, um, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's because the things, what the thing about as, as a child and also as a human being, when we are trying to explore places, we get familiar with that and the fear and the discrimination and the, all these ideas about what it looks like and what it is, which is just ideas. And yes, exactly. Reality. And they often come from, they, you know, they'll often come, our, our ideas about what other people are like will often come from some form of media, you know, whatever form it's packaged in. So it could be, um, you know, if you count books or writing as a kind of media, right? But it can be from books, it can be from, from TV shows, it can be from, um, from movies, you know, whatever it is. So, so I think, you know, and growing up, we, we all tend to watch a lot of American television and we watch all sorts of different movies. And, and based on that, we kind of have assumptions about what different people are like. Um, but yeah, when you, like you said, when, when you're actually there, when you actually live there, um, you, you experience things in, a, in an entirely different way. You experience culture in an entirely different way and, and what it means to somebody as well. And so, you know, living in, in Singapore, I got to be there and see how, you know, Chinese New Year is celebrated and, and what foods are being eaten and what words are being said and how people greet each other. What are the habits and the customs around that? Living in the Middle East, um, having lived through, I don't know how many Ramadans, I know what Ramadan looks like and what are the rules that we observe and how do we show respect for the fact that people aren't eating and then they break their fast and then this is how they pray and you know and then and then you know coming from eastern europe the habits around say easter and christmas and then i've lived in scandinavia as well in sweden so you know midsummer festivals so you just you see how people do things and and i think one of the most important lessons for me has been that there is no one right way of doing anything, of you know, being human again, being a parent, being a friend, being you know, it, it really depends. It depends on on who you ask. Different people have come up with with different ways of living that make sense to them. And I just feel like if if more people were exposed to more diverse people, um, that would be a lot clearer to, to so many of us. Um, but those are my kind of I don't know idealistic views. Of the world yeah I, th I think that too I think it is it's very very important to get familiar and explore the unexplored places like you are exploring your mind you can explore the world outside also to get to know that and when you get when you get to know that you're not less afraid of it maybe so it could be like that yeah any last words especially about your project yeah, so, um, oh, there'd be many last words. I really enjoyed our conversation. But yeah, the conference, the conference that I was mentioning is, um, is being presented under the name Humanitech. 
Uh, and so I'd encourage people to, once, once we go live with this, to have a look at our website, which is joinhumanitech.com. Um, if you find me on different social media channels, you'll be able to see my posts uh, regarding that over there. Like I said, the idea is really to talk about the impact of technology on humanity and how we can preserve humanity and, and what are the aspects of humanity that we really care about the most and that we want to um, to preserve the most. Um, we're going to have 29 really amazing, very diverse international speakers, like I said, from all sorts of different fields. Um, everything from you know poets to architects and, and designers um, and people from the, the tech world and the non-tech world. Um, and we're also going to have two um, inner wellness session leaders. Um, so, so two individuals who do really incredible work in the wellness space. So our attendees will get to experience some of their work as well. Um, so that's Humanitech. Uh, again, the website is joinhumanitech.com. Uh, and other than that, um, again, like I said, you could, for people who want to find more information about, about what I do, um, you can find me on my website, which is teopcoaching.com. So teopcoaching.com. And if you have any questions about what I do, um, you can just contact me through that, that website as well. I will definitely have everything written down so people can see it sure. and also find it on the post. Um, this conversation sure. could have easily gone three hours, four oh, hours. Yes, really, minimum. I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> and um, I have a lot more questions, but the time is, is running. And, I know. Uh, time yeah. is working against us, as always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for your contribution. Thank you, Amir. And um, Thank you. I'll be, I'll be looking forward to, to your conference. Is it, Thank you. Is it, is it online? Is it how? Yes. Yes, so the conference, un, un, well, fortunately or unfortunately, is virtual. Um, my, my kind of partners and I had the, the, the original idea to have an in-person digital wellness conference in uh, New York City. And we were talking about this earlier this year, of course, because of um, COVID and, and the pandemic, we had to kind of shift everything in, onto the virtual world. Um, so it'll be happening on the 17th and 18th of June, and it will, it will all be happening online. Does it cost anything to join in or what, what is it? Yes, is so the, we have, yes. yes, yes. So if people go to the website, they'll be able to see we have three different um, ticket options so they can check those things out. You can just attend for one day or, or both day and, and get the recordings as well. Um, and we are going to be donating 50% of the proceeds that we get from the tickets to a women and children's charity um, in, in New York City. Um, so yeah, all, all that information is, is up on the website. Perfect. Thank you for joining me here and thank you for your time. Sure. I know you're yes, busy. Of <laughs> There's a lot to do. <laughs> That's all right. So, thank you. Thank, thank you, Omar. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank, thank you. you.